Hello and welcome to Cumber Baptist Church Podcast. The following is taken from our morning service, Sunday 8th of September, 2019. This morning we are joined by Pastor Clifford Morrison, who takes his reading from 1 Kings, chapter 17, verses 1 to 7 and brings us a message entitled, Elijah, the Man and His Message. After much prayerful thought, I want to commence a series of studies on the life and times of Elijah the prophet. And so I invite you to open your Bible at 1 Kings chapter 17. 1 Kings chapter 17. And today we're going to look at the man and his message. The man and his message. 1 Kings 17. And this is the word of the Lord. Now Elijah the Tishbite of Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. You shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith, that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up, because there was no rain in the land. We thank God for his word. Father, with our Bibles open, we thank you for the scriptures of truth the inspired Word of God, that Word that lives and abides forever, that Word that is able to make us wise unto salvation through faith in our Lord Jesus. We pray that the Holy Spirit will open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to receive the Word of life today. For Jesus' sake, amen. He's known to many and referred to by some as the prophet of fire. Elijah the Tishbite, who stepped out of nowhere to become a significant prophet of God. This rugged, gaunt prophet from the obscure town of Tishmith became God's powerful instrument at God's appointed time. We will discover that he is a man amongst men, with very mixed emotions. But with God's help, he faced and withstood over 400 prophets of the false god Baal and one. Yet on another occasion, he became so terrified of a woman that he ran for his life and he wanted to end it all. He was a man who God sent his ravens to feed, a man whom God loved so much that he prepared a special chariot and horses of fire to transport him from earth to heaven. Elijah was the man in a whirlwind, the humble hero, the man that so often reminds us of the things in our own life. We're all subject at times to our frail, feeble, and fickle emotions. And at times we go through all the emotions of life in our roller coaster world with all its conflicting experiences. 
There are times when we are identified as being courageous. There are other times when we are fearful. There is a day when we are able to face life with a smile. And the very next day we feel crushed by an oppressive weight. The changing scenes of life affect us at different times. From courageous deeds to cowardly despair. From being hopeful to feeling hopeless. And like Elijah, we are ordinary people with at times overwhelming problems. And the answer to it all is God and God alone. The name Elijah indicates that it means the Lord is my God or Jehovah is my strength. He was a remarkable man. So remarkable that many of God's people are inclined to look upon him as a superhuman being. He lived a busy life. He lived a useful life. And after his ministry, as I've already alluded to, God took him to heaven without dying. Nearly a thousand years later, this man came back to earth and visited the Lord Jesus on a mountain. And according to the prophet Malachi, he will return before the great and terrible day of Jehovah Elijah, the man whom we are inclined to set apart from ordinary servants of the Lord like you and me. Yet such an estimation is wrong because James reminds us in very clear language that Elijah was a man subject to like passion as we are. A human being like the rest of us. He had emotions, he had problems, he saw the ups and downs in life that all of us face. One translation of James 5 puts it like this. Elijah was a human being with a nature such as we have. He was like us in that there were times when he was afraid. And because of fear, he fled. He saw discouragement almost to the point of death. He had the same needs and appetites that you and I have. He needed support and strength and succor that only God could supply. He was capable of suffering the same things we suffer. For after all, the Bible tells us again and again that he was a man. Now, there are three things I want to say this morning as we set the scene. It's important that we do it this way. I want you to understand something about the political situation of Elijah's day. The political situation of Elijah's day. On the death of King Solomon... The king, the kingdoms of Israel, or the kingdom of Israel, was divided into two fierce factions, who had no feelings, except contention for each other. They were about to go to war. The southern kingdom was controlled by one of Solomon's sons named Rehoboam, and the northern kingdom was controlled by one called Jeroboam. Jeroboam was a man desperately eager to keep hold on his people, but fearful of losing them to his rival if they continued to go at different times in the year to the divinely appointed feast in Jerusalem. So he set up worship of Jehovah in his own territory. Jeroboam erected two temples, one in Dan, the extreme north, and one in Bethel, the extreme south. 
And in each of these places, he placed a gold calf as a visible symbol of Jehovah. This action was a sinful one, for it broke the second commandment of God, which forbid the children of Israel to make any graven image or to bow down before it. God's people were moving away from the instruction of God's word. Things which were denounced, condemned, and holy writ were being set up. Someone has said they never before had the nation sunk so low. Fifty-eight years had passed since the kingdom had been divided following the death of Solomon. During that time, no less than seven kings reigned over the ten tribes, and all of them, without exception, were wicked, and the first of them was this man called Jeroboam. He made a house of high places, priests of the lowest of the people, which were not sons of Levi, did the same in Bethel as well as Dan. He corrupted the priesthood by installing into the divine service men who were never called and equipped by God. And the solemn, the solemn statement that appears again and again in this eternal record concerning this wicked king Jeroboam is like a funeral bell. He made Israel to sin. Again and again, he made Israel to sin. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the ways of his father and in his sin. He made Israel to sin. He was the first of seven wicked kings. Nabdad walked in the ways of his father, Jeroboam. You read about that in 1 Kings 15. He succeeded on the throne, he was succeeded on the throne by the man who murdered him, Basha. Next came Elah, a drunkard and murderer. His successor, Zimri, was guilty of treason. He was followed by a man called Omri. And we're told in 1 Kings 16 and 25 that Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all who were before him. And the son of this man, was a king called Ahab. And the Bible tells us in 1 Kings 16 and 33 that Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. And this came about because of a wicked woman whom he married and should never have done so. Then as a result, he became a tool in the hand of this crafty and unscrupulous woman called Jezebel. Politically speaking, Ahab seemed to be a shrewd king and an able statesman, and yet he seemed always to be at the mercy and control of someone else. And with this kind of thing going on in the palace, the political state of affairs in Elijah's day was in a sorry state. Before we rise to criticize this state of affairs, let's ask an important question, a rhetorical question. Are we any different today? Do we not have spineless leaders in the affairs of our land who care not for God or for his law, who want to promote same-sex marriage irrespective of what the Bible teaches and want to kill unborn children in the womb? 
They want to take God's order. They want to cast it aside. And they want to reverse it. The political situation of Elijah's day was brought about because they did not walk in the ways of the Lord. And the divine creed was ignored. And the divine precepts were not controlling the affairs of the nation. We live in a similar world, do we not? But secondly, we need to underline the spiritual situation of Elijah's day. When the young, beautiful Jezebel left the sealed palaces of Tyre to become the wife of the newly crowned Ahab, it was no doubt regarded as a splendid match. One historian says Tyre at that time sat as queen upon the seas in the zenith of its glory. Her colonies dotted the shores of the Mediterranean as far as Spain, and her ships whitened every sea with their sails. But like many a splendid match, the marriage of Ahab and Jezebel was fraught with disaster. You see, no one can willfully disobey God's plain teaching in these matters and not face the consequences. Whatsoever a man soweth, that shall he also reap. That is not just the law of nature, but that nature law is used to amplify a spiritual law that's highlighted again and again in the Scriptures. And as she left her palace home, Jezebel would have been urged by the priest to do her utmost to introduce into Israel the hideous and cruel rites of her heathen religion. And this is exactly what she did. When she arrived in Israel as the new queen, she brought her religion with her. Shrines and temples began to rise in all parts of the land in honor of Baal, while all the altars of Jehovah, like those at Carmel, were ruthless, ruthlessly broken down and utterly destroyed. The land literally swarmed with the priest of Baal, proud of their court favor, glorying in their sudden rise to power, greedy, licentious, and debased. The fires of persecution were lit and began to burn with fury. The schools of the prophets were shut up. They were closed and grass grew in their courts. Defiance of the Lord God and blatant wickedness had now reached culminating point. The whole land, spiritually speaking, was far from God. Of all the thousands of Israel, only 7,000 had not bowed the knee or kissed the hand of Baal, but they were so paralyzed with fear that Elijah didn't even know that they existed in his hour of great loneliness. Here was a day when God was completely forgotten. Here was a day when Baal worship, the official religion of the land, was predominant. No voice was being lifted up for Israel's God. No hand was being raised against the iniquity of the heathen. And as I draw attention to this fact, I ask the question, do we have a parallel today? And I know that you respond in your heart by saying, yes, I think we do. How does it affect you and me? 
How do we show concern? Are we moved within? Or do we say to ourselves, I'm all right the way I am. I have food to eat, I have clothes to wear, I have a roof over my head. I enjoy a reasonable measure of health and strength. My family's doing well and that's all that really matters. God bless me. My wife and me, our two children, us four and no more. That can be the attitude of so many today, even among God's people. So as we look at this man and his message, we note the political situation of Elijah's day. We note the spiritual situation of Elijah's day. And we note the critical situation of Elijah's day. Both nationally and religiously, things were at a very low ebb. The situation, no matter what way you looked at, could not have been any bleaker or blacker. But God was still on the throne. And God is never at a loss. And God is never on the losing side. And there's always victory, so long as the Lord God omnipotent reigneth. The land may be overrun with sin. The lamp of witness may all seem to be extinguished. The whole course of current thinking may run contrary to God's truth. The plot may threaten to be within a hair's breadth of success. But all the time, God was preparing a man. God was preparing his man. A weak man in some obscure place. At the hour of greatest need, he would send forth his servant in response to the worsening plot that was being highlighted by his foes and enemies. And across the opening verses of 1 Kings chapter 17, we can write the words of Isaiah 59, when the enemy shall come in like a flood, the Spirit of the Lord shall raise up a standard against him. At a very crucial moment, Elijah appeared on the scene of Israel's history. One who was to prove that he was God's man for God's time. And the task which confronted him was no ordinary one. He was entrusted with the responsibility of turning the nation away from the brink of death and disaster. What motivated this man? What moved this man? Well, I think as we move on in the account of the life and times of Elijah, there seems to be one sentence that helps us to measure the spiritual caliber of the man. And it's in 1 Kings 19.10, I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. I have been very jealous for the Lord God of hosts. Here was a man who had God's glory at his heart. Here was a man and the honor of God's name meant more to him than anything else. And his heart becomes grieved and filled with holy indignation as he becomes more and more informed about the terrible character and the wide extent of Israel's defection from God. How should he act? What could he do? 
As these questions were raised in his heart and mind, Satan would say, you can do nothing. You're powerless. You're a weakling. You're boxing above your weight. You're out of your comfort zone. There's nothing you can do. Forget about it. That's what Satan would say. And sometimes Satan speaks like that when we're confronted with personal problems, when we're confronted with family problems, when we're confronted with business, material, financial, spiritual problems. Forget about it. The scene around him would say, the condition is beyond you. Well, maybe the condition was beyond Elijah, but not beyond Elijah's God. He prayed. You know, you hear people saying, well, at least we can pray about it. The most important thing you can do is pray about it. If everything else fails, we can always pray. That's the wrong attitude to prayer. Prayer is the work. Without prayer in our personal life, without prayer in our church life, then just pick up the ball, blow the whistle, the match is over. There's nothing more you can do. We need to pray. And his prayer was grounded in the Word of God and energized by the Spirit of God. And when things that are a low ebb, when we feel hopeless in ourselves, here is the mighty weapon that God places at our disposal. You see, Satan still trembles when he sees the wicked sin upon their knees. Here was a man with a true sense of value. And that's what brought him to the throne of grace in prayer. That's what led him to direct the people back to the Word of God. Because two things God has joined together, and what God has joined together we must never pull asunder. And that is the Word of God and prayer. The Word will take us to prayer, and prayer will take us to the Word. And together, God has said, these are the weapons through which we will bring down the strongholds of Satan. The word of Second Chronicles chapter 7, verse 14 comes to mind. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. Will you notice three things as we close? Will you notice the company that are identified here? My people. My covenant people. My chosen people. The people with whom I have entered into a, a covenant relationship. My people. God's people. If God's people don't pray, who's going to pray? The company that are identified. The condition that is specified. Look, if my people called by my name will humble themselves. It's a very serious thing, a frightening thing. And it, can, it, it sends a shiver down my spine if I hear any Christian prayer. Lord, humble us. My dear friends, it's a drastic thing when God has to take steps to humble his servants. Read the story of Nebuchadnezzar to learn about that. We are to humble ourselves. And as we allow the Word of God to saturate our minds and to stimulate our thinking, 
So there will be that humble, contrite heart born in us through the authoritative effect of the Word of God in our lives. And the humble man will be the prayerful man. One of the outcomes of humility is prayer because the humble man senses, I need God. I need God in my own life. I need to see God working in my children's life. I need to see God working in my grandchildren's life. I need to see God working in this church fellowship and in the life of all the families represented here. And so I need to humbly come before God because it only comes from God and God alone. The humble man prays. But the humble man is aware of his sin. And he turns from his wicked ways. Now we're not talking about the world here. We're not talking about the ungodly here. We're talking about the covenant people, my people, called by my name. And if you read the letters to the church in the Revelation again and again, God calls his people there to repent of their sin, to repent of their uh, self-sufficiency, to repent of a mindset says that uh, I'm all right the way I am, to have no spiritual values whatsoever. You see, we're not to be controlled by the thinking, by the God of this world. And the only way we will not be controlled by that is to humble ourselves and to continually turn from that which grieves the Lord. And the consequences to be realized is this. He will hear from heaven. He will forgive our sin. He will heal our land. Oh, my dear friends, do we not need God to hear from heaven? Do we not need God to forgive us our sin? Things that maybe we tolerate today, we wouldn't have tolerated in the early days of our Christian walk. An apathy, an indifference that we would never have courted years ago, but it can so easily creep in. The old pastor said, you know, the problem is not when the ship is in the water. The problem begins when the water gets into the ship. The political situation of Elijah's day, the spiritual situation of Elijah's day, the critical situation of Elijah's day. Elijah was raised up to meet the need of the hour. He was to be used by God to woo and win Israel back to God. He was to stem the tide of wickedness and sin. And he triumphed because the Lord was on his side. Oh, this morning, let's take courage that amidst all the confusion, God is still on the throne. And Elijah's God is our God. And he will remember his own. To look out, we could be despondent. To look in, we maybe would be despairing. But to look up, we delight ourselves in the Lord. Elijah's God is our God. And he will remember his own. And may we be a people ready and willing in the day of God's power to be what he wants us to be. Father, write your word in all our hearts this morning. And cause us 
not to apply it to anyone else but to ourselves. Help us, O God, not just to be hearers of the word, but doers also. We thank you that Elijah's God is our God this morning. Hear our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen.